I want to say this before we, before we jump in. You certainly have noticed in the news uh, this week a lot going on, uh, a lot of tension in our country. And uh, before we jump into the teaching, I just want to pray. I, I know there are brothers and sisters meeting right now in Charlotte, and uh, I want to pray specifically for the churches and for the pastors, knowing that spiritual leadership right now is so needed, not just in Charlotte, but in our country. So will you just pause and pray with me as we pray for our, uh, these pastors and brothers and sisters right now? Lord, uh, our hearts are heavy with what's happened this week in terms of tension and um, racial uh, divisions in our country. And we know that uh, that grieves your heart. And Lord, right now, I just want to pray specifically for the pastors in Charlotte, North Carolina. I want to pray that for four specific things. Lord, would you give them wisdom to know exactly how to navigate through a very complex situation right now? Would you give them uh, the conviction to speak well? Uh, to speak in what you've placed upon their hearts? Would you give them compassion above all else? But would you also give them equal measures of courage to lean in and do the right thing? Lord, I pray they would know that there are others. This is not an isolated thing in Charlotte, but there are others around the country that are praying and supporting and wanting to care for them from afar. And so be with those as they meet at this very hour in churches scattered around North Carolina and uh, specifically in the city of Charlotte. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you, and we thank you that we share uh, a heritage and a bond of Christ uh, with them. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, uh, to turn to, to Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we specifically have one in the back in a box where the, the, red, the, the lit up R is in the back of the room. And so if you need a Bible, feel free uh, to go there. For the next three gatherings, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Jonah. And if I were to ask you two questions, uh, when you think of Jonah, what comes to your mind? And secondly, what do you know about Jonah? I'm going to go on the assumption that what comes to your mind is a really big fish. Most people besides that, if you've grown up in VBS or, or church as a kid, uh, you, that's probably the image that comes to your mind. But I want to make sure that we get some background information. We always do this as we start a new series. So I want to start with some background information for you to know some of the cultural, historical, geographical uh, elements going on, which will deeply influence the story itself that we're going to jump into in chapter one this morning. So let's look at Jonah the person. Now, what do we know about Jonah? Jonah was an Old Testament prophet in Israel. And if you don't know what a prophet was, a prophet specifically was a messenger from God. God had somebody set out to be a mouthpiece. So that message would be given to that person. That person would then share uh, with Israel. And uh, so that uh, that's an important piece. But Jonah lived in the 8th century BC. So long, long time ago. And Jonah's name actually means dove, which is interesting. And when people hear dove, it also means beloved. So it says that his father's name was Amittai. Amittai means amen or truth. So we learn right away that Jonah's name means the beloved son of truth, which we'll find the irony of that as uh, we go on in this book. Uh, let's look at Jonah the book for a second. It's only four chapters long. It's only 48 verses long. Uh, most books involving prophets in the Old Testament talk about the prophet's message. But in this particular case, this book is a bit different because it's about the prophet himself. 
less about his message, more about his life. And it's a fantastic little book that's greatly misunderstood. And I'll tell you, I misunderstood it for a long time. And when I finally understood it, I was so gripped by it. It is my favorite Old Testament book. And I hope that you'll, through the next several weeks, grasp just how wonderful this little book is and how much it has to teach us today. Now, it's an anonymous book. Most people believe that Jonah is the one that wrote the book, although we don't actually know. Um, some think that uh, others might have written it, but we aren't entirely sure. But most believe that it was Jonah himself uh, that wrote this. Even though it's a small book, it contains some of the most dramatic passages in all of the Old Testament, of which, in my opinion, the great fish passage is one of the least dramatic of the entire book. It's a great story, and it's a great parable for us as well to give us a sharp personal awareness of the truth that's available to all people and including us. Now, there are three cities that are talked about, and let me just briefly give you a sketch of these three cities that we're going to look at through our time. The first one is Nineveh. Uh, it's the capital of Assyria, world domination. I want to show you, if you, uh, today, uh, Mosul, Iraq, you've probably heard in the news the last few years in terms of ISIS, but Mosul, Iraq, just across the river from Mosul, Iraq, is current day, or is uh, the current ruins of old Nineveh. You can actually go visit them today, which I would love to do at some point uh, in my life time. Now, Assyria was Israel's arch enemy, and it was also one of the largest cities in the known world, very cosmopolitan. We'll learn later that it took a, a grown man, on average, three days to walk from one side to the other. Now, these are current pictures of Nineveh, but you can see some of the ruins, a wonderful city. Certainly, it's been rebuilt over the years, um, but wonderful picture of what Nineveh is like. Genocide was state policy in Nineveh. Assyria was awful. Uh, in fact, in Nahum, which I'm sure you are in your devotions this week in the book of Nahum, but for those of you who weren't, in chapter 3 of Nahum, this is what it says. It's just uh, amazing uh, the, the vitriol, uh, the, the bad uh, view that was had of the city of Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. I am a Against you, declares the Lord Almighty, I will lift your skirts over your face, and I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? That's pretty severe in our Bibles of talking about this city of Nineveh. A terrible place. Think of the images. Pulling your skirt over your head to expose your shame and your nakedness. Pile of dead. Stumble, people stumbling over corpses. This is not the image that you want your city to be known for. That's, that's the first city that we see. The second one is Joppa. We're going to learn about Joppa here in, uh, in chapter 1. It, it's an actual ancient port uh, city in northern Israel. It's still a port city today, but it's called Jaffa. Jaffa, and it's just a suburb of Tel Aviv. You can visit it today. A beautiful uh, picture here. This is kind of the newer port. Next slide. Um, you can see here just a little bit. You, know, you see the, the wall there. Um, if you look a little bit out, there's a little bit of some waves that are collecting um, just right 
right in here. Uh, that's uh, where the ruins of the old port would be. Uh, next slide. Here's a little uh, Google Earth map. You can see the ancient port there just past the rock pile, just to make sure that we embody this. These are real places and real figures, and uh, Jonah spent real time in these places. Uh, and then the other city is Tarshish. Not only is it a really fun word to say, Tarshish, but it's uh, south and west geographically, very west. Archaeologists believe that this is where Seville, Spain is on the southern coast of Spain. But it was the farthest geographical point in the known world at the time, the end of the world, the end of the world. Let me show you a map of this, okay? Look at Joppa, look at Nineveh. Just look how far Tarshish is from Joppa. By the way, if you were to go to Joppa to catch a boat, you can't get to Nineveh by boat. <laughs> it's inland. There's a very purposeful decision going on here of from 550 miles to five times that amount going all the way to Tarshish. This is not random geography. This is uh, opposite end of the world. Now we also need to know something about sailing and sailors. And uh, you know this would have been an expensive trip to go from Joppa all the way to Tarshish. In fact, you probably would have to save up for quite some time. It would be a planned decision and not a spur of the moment. Let me go down this afternoon and see if I can catch a ship all the way out to, to Tarshish. This would have been an ongoing uh, discussion and conversation decision that you would have had to have planned for. In fact, some scholars believe that you couldn't just go to Joppa and hire, uh, you know, you'd have to go hire someone specifically as a chartered boat because it was that expensive needing that much of crew and cargo on the way out. Speaking of cargo, cargo would be very precious on a journey of 2,500 miles. Even in times of great desperation, a storm that comes up, the only way that you would throw cargo overboard is that is your absolute last resort that you know you're going to die. And so so it's this as the precursor to realizing that we're going to die in a bad storm. All this is important for us to keep in mind as far as the culture, the geography, the history. Keep that in mind for just one second. We also need to, I just want to give some background on the themes of the book because we got to notice the themes because they come up again and again and again. And, and the first thing is this in terms of the theme of Jonah. I want you to notice the word great. For a book of only 48 verses, the word great comes up all the time. And you're going to notice this. Nineveh is described as a great city many times. God sends a great storm. On a, on, it's mentioned twice. Sailors eventually have great faith. People of Nineveh repent from the least to the greatest, you'll learn. And then, of course, a great fish that we're going to learn about. Now, let me, say, let me just say this. Let me just say this. If you only realize one thing for the next several weeks about the book of Jonah, it's this. The story is not about Jonah and a great big fish. It is about Jonah and a great big God. And if you only get that and you fall asleep, the rest of the teachings through the fall, I hope you just catch that. Jonah is not about Jonah and a big fish. It is about Jonah and a great big God. And Jonah wants us to get this as, as we'll journey through this. That God has such a heart for people, bigger than we may even realize at this very moment. Now, we're enamored with the story of the big fish. But we really should be enamored about our great big God. And I'm hoping by the end of our time together, we'll be able to say, God is bigger and greater than I ever imagined. 
The second theme that it's good to keep in mind is inclusivity, that God's love for people. What throws Jonah off is that God was loving the people that Jonah didn't believe God deserved to love. Which goes to the next theme, and that's this idea of Jonah's misconceptions of God. You know, Jonah probably would have benefited a great deal from our summer series that we just finished on misconceptions. He had a bunch of his own, and it took a long time to get that out of him. But he had an inaccurate view of God throughout the entire book. Here's this man of God, the messenger, the prophet, and he didn't understand fully who God was. Which leads to the last theme, and I think this is just incredibly important. I want you to notice irony. There's irony all throughout this book. The genre is actually satire. Some would even say the genre is comedy, not as in ha-ha funny, but as in there's lots of irony and surprise and poetic justice and everybody gets it but him. And So I want you to notice the irony that exists. For example, we see in the book a prophet who rebels, pagan sailors who repent, a powerful and murderous king who's arrogant, who humbles himself, and it says even cows end up repenting. Cows, what was that like? Cows end up repenting in this book. So I want you to notice how ironic it is that it's befuddling and funny and sometimes even frustrating because we never ever see a successful Jonah. You'll find irony everywhere. And here's the greatest irony. I'm going to give you two of them. Here's the greatest irony that I want you to keep in mind. Everyone and everything in the book of Jonah changes except one, Jonah himself. Everyone changes in the whole book but Jonah. The cows change. The sailors change. Even God changes his mind, but Jonah doesn't. Here's the other irony. When we read the book correctly, we can laugh and shake our heads and then think or say out loud, Jonah, you're such an idiot. And then just a moment later to realize, I'm Jonah. Jonah, you're an idiot. I'm Jonah. So now that you've turned in your Bibles uh, to the book of Jonah, and uh, if you don't know where it is, I'll give you another extra minute or two. I know it's not necessarily where we're always at. It's about two-thirds of the way through uh, the Bible. Um, it's a part of a section called the Minor Prophets. In the Old Testament, they're minor and major prophets. The only difference between the major and the minor prophets is simply the length of their books. And uh, you'll find in the Old Testament the major prophets are much longer, but there's only a few of them. The minor prophets are much shorter, but there's a whole bunch of them. And um, so let's, let's uh, pull out our Bibles and let's read uh, from Jonah chapter 1, keeping all the themes that you're going to notice and the geographical and historical backgrounds in play. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness had come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call to your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. 
Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault and that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they did not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing this innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Well, let's unpack this a little bit more, because there's a lot there before we even get to verse 17, which is what everyone remembers. So keep your Bibles open, and let's, let's just work through this a little bit at a time. We, we, we learn right away, again, Jonah's name, right? So right away we learn, here is the beloved son of truth, And he gets a message from the Lord, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. This is a very odd assignment. Now, why is this odd for a prophet of Israel? Because Assyria isn't Israel. (laughs) Prophets in Israel would get a message to go to their own people. This is a new assignment to go to a different group of people. And don't preach to it, but preach against it. Talk about an assignment you don't want as a prophet of Israel is to go out of Israel to the arch enemy and say this. But Jonah, it says in verse 3, but ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Some translations even say, Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. Irony. Now Jonah was a good, moral, upstanding Jew, and so Jonah says, no way. I'm not going there. Why would I go there? The man of truth The prophet of God is living under the illusion that it's possible to run away from God. Irony. God loves Jonah too much, and he loves the great city of Nineveh too much to simply let Jonah continue to be Jonah. So he leaves Joppa for Tarshish to try to flee from the Lord. You know, it's one thing to ignore God when you're you're a messenger of God, but it's quite another to adamantly, defiantly say, there's no way I'm going to do this. He says, anywhere but Nineveh, I'll follow you, God, but not there. And I think it's important for us as we talk about Scripture being both a, a window and a mirror that we talked about two weeks ago. We learn about the window, we look through the window and learn about Jonah, but we also got to make sure we understand this is a mirror. As Jonah says, God, I'll serve you, but I won't do that. The mirror for us says, do we do that? Jonah, uh, God, I will follow you, but I won't do that. God, I'll do that as long as you 
I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you want except there. The moment we begin to put conditions on God is the moment we actually are acting like Jonah. When we have asterisks and fine print that we include in our, our agreement to follow God, we're just being Jonah. We're just being Jonah. And then we see in verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Again, there's the word great again. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his own God. We see the crew. There's vibrant multiculturalism. There's religious pluralism that exists here, even in the 8th century B.C. Sailors are worried about their lives, and Jonah is sleeping peacefully below deck. Irony. And the sailors end up praying. Then they're awestruck by this God. They worship this God of Jonah. They make sacrifices. They ask for mercy. They vow to serve God. But who's the only one that doesn't do that? Jonah. The captain says, get up and call to your God so that we won't die. The pagan captain is calling Jonah, the man of God, to prayer. Irony. The prophet is doing what a pagan does, rebel against God's desires. And a pagan is doing what a prophet does, encourage people to pray. By the way, does this remind you of anybody else that fell asleep on a boat in a storm somewhere? You know, the Jewish readers in the New Testament, the Jewish listeners of the New Testament, who would have heard the story of Jesus asleep on a boat in the midst of a storm, would have immediately thought of who? Jonah. And it says they cast lots, kind of this primitive form of flipping a coin or drawing straws, and it fell to Jonah. Tell us, who's responsible for making this kind of trouble? And then they say, what work do you do? Huh. How do you answer that one? But he does. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Basically, Jonah says, I'm a messenger of the God who created all this wind and this problem we're in. Irony. I serve that God who created this kind of storm where you're about to die. And I just, verse 10, it just cracks me up. They say, what have you done? What have you done? Pagan sailors are chastising the man of God. What have you done? Wasn't that Jonah's assignment to go to Nineveh and say to them, what have you done? Now they're telling him, what have you done? Irony. Maybe your Bible has a parenthetical uh, sentence in there in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, like mine does, where it says, and they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Now, I don't know, but it seems like Jonah's bragging here. If you're embarrassed about that, you don't tell anybody that. When you got on a ship, you go, hey, I'm trying to get the heck away from this God. Do whatever I can to get out of here. They already knew it because he's bragging about it. And finally, they decide, what are we going to do? Verse 12, just pick me up and throw me into the sea and it'll become calm. I know it's my fault. It's the great storm that's come upon you because of me. Notice again the word great. The sailors didn't want to do it. They did not want to do it. They try to sail back. They realize they can't do it. And then they pray to Jonah's God. And they say, please don't let his blood be on our hands. We've done all that we can. Please have mercy on us. And they pray for mercy, and they throw him overboard. Jonah basically says, I should die for something like this. 
Now, I guess if you're so stubborn and you're so against what God is asking you to do, that's one way to get out of your assignment is to die. And Jonah's pretty stubborn here. And a crazy thing happens. Verse 15, it, the sea calms down. And at this time, men greatly feared the Lord. Their trust in God was great. Irony. They feared the Lord. They offered God a sacrifice. They made vows to him. The pagans are more obedient and responsive to God than Jonah is. In verse 17, the Lord provided this great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Notice once again the word great. Now, let me be really clear. I just got to get this off my chest one time during the, this series, and then I'll, I'll, I won't say it again, all right? It is not a whale, all right? <laughs> Could be a whale. doesn't say a whale, all right? So sometimes when I see, like, you know, children's ministry areas, and they got a big, giant whale, I just want to, you know, uh, not vandalism, but in my mind I do. It's not a whale. It's not a whale. It's not a whale. It says a great fish. Now, it could have been a whale, sure, but there are other fish large enough in the sea that could have swallowed them, which is just, again, a dramatic story for sure. But it's not a whale, despite what your kid's children's storybook Bible says. And Jonah might have been upset as he'd been swallowed up because his plan to try to run from the presence of the Lord all of a sudden has been derailed. To try to die... Rather than do what God said, the plan has taken a setback. If you want a summary of all of chapter 1, all right, I can do it in 21 words, okay? This is the whole summary of, of the whole chapter, and it goes like this, all right? God says, go. Jonah says, no. God says, blow. Jonah says, so. Captain says, bro. Jonah says, throw. Sailors say, whoa. All right? That's the summary of the book, of the chapter. But here, here's, here's what's important for us to grasp. Jonah is such a screw-up. <laughs> he's, he's what we would call someone having low emotional intelligence and a high level of stubbornness. Jonah is slow to learn that God's heart is bigger than Jonah wants it to be. And despite the irony, God still pursues people. He pursues Jonah's enemies. He's pursuing the pagan sailors. And he's even patient enough to pursue Jonah. So the scripture as a mirror, I think it's important for us to ask these two questions. The first one is this. What is that group of people that you would refuse to go to if God called you? God, I can't possibly love that group of people over there. Or maybe it's a little more secretive and subtle. Maybe it's, God, I'm sure you love me and my people a little bit more than them. If God extended grace to a group of people, what would shock you, frustrate you, and maybe make you jealous? And then secondly, what would we do if we actually realized that we're acting and thinking and feeling and believing just like Jonah? Then what? You know, two weeks ago, we, we talked about grace and that metaphor of, 
of being on one end of the, on the shore of the Pacific Ocean and having a rock throwing contest to see who could throw it to the other end of the Pacific Ocean. Right? And some would be better than others to pick up that rock and to chuck it far and to say, well, I can chuck it better than them, and so that must make me a little bit better. And it's just ludicrous, right? There's no way we can get over that gap that we have. But it's Jesus who gets on a ship and comes to us on our shore and picks us up and says, climb aboard, hop aboard, but I need your rock. The stone-throwing games are over. Jonah believes as a messenger of God, his arm is amazing. He can chuck a rock really far, and he believes the Ninevites are so backwards, they don't even know how to pick up a stone to start the competition. That's how bad they are. And when Jesus comes with the ship, when God comes over with the ship and he says, climb aboard and oh, you Ninevites, you can too, Jonah says, no, 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 I'm not getting on this ship. God is trying to get Jonah's attention, and hopefully he's trying to get our attention too, if we're willing to pay attention, that grace is the way forward. God is so patient with Jonah throughout the book. It reminds me of the father in the prodigal son story we looked at about a month ago. Notice how God is interacting with Jonah like the older, older son. Entitlement, Look at how great I am. Look at all that I've done. And now, Father, you're extending grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. And I'm angry. The father in the prodigal son story is very similar to God's interaction with Jonah here. God is so painstakingly patient. So here, here are two mantras two theses that I want us to remember from this morning in chapter one, and it's this. And you've heard the first one already, but it's so important. We need to keep talking about it. That it's not about being enamored with a great big fish. It's about realizing we have a great big God. We have a great big God. And the second is this, that the gospel is good news and it's bad news. The good news is that God loves you, and the bad news is, is that God also loves all the people you hate. <coughs> So if scripture is a window and a mirror, and at this point as we're reflecting on what is the reflection that we see coming back at us, there are two things I hope this elicits in us as a community. Whether this is your first time here or you've been here from the beginning, I think this is important for us. What do we do? Anytime scripture calls out to us, we simply need to say, hey, we're calling back. What do we do? How do we respond? And, and the first response is a high, we need to, hopefully through this book, We'll have a higher view of God than what we currently have now. What does it mean to have a high view of God? Well, let's look at a low view of God. A low view of God sees God as a nice add-on to our lives. Someone who we can believe is good as long as it's convenient for our schedules, and as long as it doesn't conflict with our previous commitments. If there's room to throw them in, sure, yeah, that's great. God, you're awesome. Just come on in. Make yourself at home, but work around my schedule. 
A low view of God gives conditions to follow God, like we just talked about. I will agree to follow you, God, as long as you don't send me here, as long as I get that, as long as you don't make me do this, then I'm in. That's a low view of God. But a high view of God is a realignment to give God every part of our lives and of our future, even if it requires great sacrifice on our part. A high view of God says, God, no matter what, I will follow you, follow you wherever you call me. No asterisks, no fine print, I'm in. I'm in. That's a high view of God. And I hope that as we work through this book that we'll be both encouraged and also jolted and convicted and challenged that maybe there are asterisks and fine print to the contract that we've slipped God across the table. God, you owe this to me. Oh, really? God, I'll do this as long as, oh, really? And maybe that'll reveal our high or low view of God as we currently see him. So I'm hoping that our view of God will just grow higher for each one of us and collectively as a church. And then the second is this, that we'd have a deeper sense of our need for grace. The more I read Jonah, the more I understand what's going on in Jonah, the more I just realize I need grace so badly. I need grace so badly. A patient pursuing God, even in our slowness to learn and obey, should make us humble and overwhelm us with his graciousness and patience with us. He's a painstakingly patient God. And I love that adverb, painstakingly, because you'll notice the effort that God goes when he doesn't need to. Just like in the story of the prodigal son, the love of the father is painstakingly patient. It's not convenient patience. He's patient with Nineveh, with the pagan sailors, and most notably the messenger of God, the prophet of Jonah. The same God is patient with you, even if you sit here and say, you don't know what I've done, you can't possibly understand, and if God knew, then he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't be able to forgive me of what I've done in my past. The good news and the bad news is he knows exactly <laughs> what you've done. And yet, good news, he still is willing to be patient with you, painstakingly patient with you, because that's his nature, and that's how much he loves you. And this is the same God that's patient with you, even when you say, I don't want to follow God. I can't possibly change. I don't want to change. I don't think God can change me. He's still painstakingly patient with you. He's even painstakingly patient with those of us in this room that still think the fine print and the asterisks in the contract, we try to slip him across the table is appropriate. He's still painstakingly patient with us in that. He's a really great God. He's a really great and big God who loves us despite all of this. So scripture as a window, Jonah, you're an idiot. Scripture as a mirror, God, thanks for putting up with the Jonah in me. So we're going to pray because I, I think that's the best response that we can do is sliding of hearing something like chapter one of Jonah and then just praying. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray in two ways. First, that it starts with repentance in our own heart. What are those asterisks? What are those points of fine print? Where are those things that we've thought, you know what, my arm really is good enough, and I'm sure I chuck a rock in the rock-throwing contest just a little bit farther than those people. Remember, the only thing that the gospel can't stand is entitlement. When you think that someone owes you or you deserve something, we can't fully understand grace or the good news of Jesus. 
And maybe there's some repentance that needs to happen in us because we live in a country that's defined by entitlement. We grow up breathing the air of entitlement more than we even know it. And so it should evoke and elicit some repentance. And and from repentance, then we move to hearing the voice of God say, I'm painstakingly patient with you. I hear you. I will work with you. And then it moves us to gratitude for that painstakingly deep patience that God has and his immense grace for us. So here's what I'm going to have us do just as we end our time in prayer. And if some of you say, I'm really bad at prayer. I don't know how to pray. It's okay. No one's going to force you to pray out loud. But I'm just going to leave space between those three movements for us to be able to just whisper in our own spirits quietly to God if there's something that's been revealed to you, something that's been stirred in you that you say, man, oh, oh, there's some angst of like, whoa, that really connected with me. I want to leave some space for that. All right? So let me pray. Let's pray together. Lord, um, maybe some of us here, as we think about the story of Jonah that we've known, or even in chapter 1, where uh, we've said, yeah, Jonah, you're an idiot. How can you not get it? How can you be so slow? How can you not see all the irony around us? And maybe some of us, by the end of this, have now said, whoa, that's me. I'm Jonah. I've put asterisks and fine print to my commitment to God. And so, Lord, we need to just pause right now in the silence of this moment, and we need to ask, we need to confess, and we need to repent that this spirit of entitlement, like the older son in the prodigal son story, is not anything that honors you. And Lord, as we have confessed and repented the pride or the entitlement in us, right now we need to hear from you that whisper that you're patient with us, that this is a part of your character. And so Lord, we want to hear this very moment, I'm patient with you. I'm patient with you. I'm a great and big and wonderful and painstakingly patient God. And I hope and pray that you've heard the Holy Spirit whisper that to you just in the silence of this moment. And if so, I, if you sit with that reality of knowing the patience of God, of knowing his forgiveness in the midst of our repentance, it should move our hearts to gratitude. And so take a moment in the quietness of this room just to be able to say, God, thanks for your painstakingly patient presence with me. Thank you for the depth of your grace. Just thank him in your spirit for that.
God, you are a patient God. We hear about the story of a great big fish, but we want to be more enamored with the great big God. Lord, we need you. We need a higher view of you. Forgive us when we put asterisks and fine print into our relationship with you. May we be people of such a high view of you that we say, God, whatever, wherever, whenever, I'm in, because you're really that good. And I'll put my plans aside and die to what I think should happen because you're higher and greater than I am, and therefore I'm going to trust your plan. And Lord, may we always just be a community that when you cut us open, we just bleed out grace. We ooze out mercy. We prayed over mercy freed, but Lord, I pray mercy would just run wild through our veins so that we just bleed that out to the world. Help us to be the kinds of people where mercy isn't just a theoretical construct, but is a reality in who we live and how we live each and every day. And it's the name of this painstakingly patient God that we pray. Amen.